Well, it's back. The Brattlecast. Always fun year to year as we rack up so many other episodes. I think we're into the, well, almost the 200th episode. We'll have a big party when that occurs. I'm Jordan Rich <laughs> along with Ken Gloss. So many exciting and interesting things to talk about, Ken. And I thought uh, since you brought it up when we came into the studio today, uh, you could share with us what it's like when somebody walks in, I'm granted with an appointment, walks in with books under his or her arm and what sometimes might entail. Well, actually, this just as I was coming here, Ed, I, uh, I had a man, and I think he said he got in touch with us about six or eight months ago, and I talked with him a little. But anytime someone just calls you up and say they have rare books, you sort of go, well, maybe they do, maybe they don't, maybe they'll show up, maybe they won't. Uh, he called um, yet uh, two days ago and said he'd like to bring in some books, and he mentioned a couple that actually sounded good, okay. uh, and, and but they also depend very much on what the condition is, how they are. And he said his aunt had died in the Boston area, and he was inheriting them, and he was lived in the Midwest, and he wanted to bring them home, and um, but he wasn't sure what his family was going to do with them. Now, one of the things that that the first thing that comes to my mind is. What are these books? And I love seeing them. The second thing is that he wanted to get prices for insurance. and uh, But I don't like doing formal appraisals for people where I'm being paid. And not that I can't do them, not that they're not that hard to do, at least unless you get the IRS involved. That's another whole story. But if you do a paid appraisal for somebody, you really shouldn't be the one buying the books. And what I explained to him is we make our money buying and selling books, right. not not charging, you know, a little for the appraisal. So it would be considered sort of a conflict of interest. No, it would be considered a definite conflict of okay, interest. Okay, not, not sort of, but definitely. Gotcha. Definitely. Okay. So what we do in that case a lot of times is we'll look at the books and we'll verbally say, you know, if you're doing it for insurance, it should be this price, that price, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, we'll even sometimes write it up as sort of a semi-offer and say, look, if you want to use that, if you they'll accept it, that's fine. But we don't want to get paid for it because we don't want the formal detail that they've paid us to do. We want to keep it separate. And I tell people the reason we want it separate right from the start is we don't want that conflict of interest. If we buy it, we want to feel free. And and if they need a very formal written appraisal, I'll recommend somebody for them. But he came in with his lawyer today. And uh, I was out in the morning, and um, the store manager uh, was in when he got in. And I went upstairs and, um, and said, apologize that I got tied up for about 15 minutes later. And I walk in, and there were two books on the table. There, one... They're both about this size. Huge. <laughs> big, big books. Uh, one is a thing called the Nuremberg Chronicle, printed in 1492. It's a big, thick book with uh, probably one of the first books ever done with illustrations. Uh, it was in a newer binding. About the Newer means a 100, 150-year-old <laughs> binding, yes. not a 400-year-old binding or 500 years old. And what the first thing my the manager was doing was going through it page by page. And next to it was sitting a book almost the same size but done in the 1890s called the Kelmscott Chaucer. And that's one of the best editions ever done of Chaucer by a man named William Morris. 
and he's a very great designer, a great book. This was his Keystone mm-hmm. book. Beautiful. Well, each one of those is worth fifty to $100,000, each one. You, let me ask you a question because my eyes are popping open yeah. on that. But when you started chatting with me today, we talked about the fact that you got a call from somebody, and that person may have mentioned some titles. Obviously, you know off the top of your head when you mention a title and, and an author and a date that there's something that – there's something there there. Yeah. doesn't necessarily mean it's going to pan out because it might be the terrible condition, but it, you, you felt good about this going in. I felt good. He didn't even mention the specific books, uh-huh. but he mentioned a certain press and that his aunt had been a collector. And, and all I need is that inkling. I actually usually stop asking questions after that because I don't want it to be so complicated for the person that they say, well, wait a minute, we have to double check. We have to, we'll call you when we're ready. I, you know, mm. I sort of say at that point that if there's that inkling, bring it in. You're welcoming at that point. Yeah, and he also said he was going to come in with the estate lawyer, which tells me immediately oh, yeah. that if there's an estate lawyer involved and the lawyer wants to be there, that it has to be something better mm. because the estate has to have value because otherwise you wouldn't have an estate lawyer. You wouldn't, right? And he's probably charging by the hour, so that's Pro- all good. Pro- uh, so, so let's go circle back because now that I've caught yeah. my breath. Each book values roughly fifty to one hundred. Fifty to one hundred thousand dollars. Actually, for insurance, we even said a little bit higher. And the reason we have a value that's a little higher for insurance is, let's say, one of these books that's an eighty to one hundred thousand dollar book. Let's say it got stolen at the airport when he's going back to the Midwest. If he wanted to get another copy of that book when he wanted it immediately. You could probably get it, but the only ones that are going to be readily available, if they're available at all, are the ones that haven't sold. And the reason usually they haven't sold is they're a little bit overpriced. But if you file an insurance claim, you just want another copy of the book. Right. Makes sense. So Makes you sense. usually – so you add another 20 25 percent just to be sure that the person doesn't have to wait five years to find a copy. So a person of that stature knows he's got something valuable because he's lived in that family and he knows. He doesn't know exactly how much, is that? Uh, not necessarily. Really? Because this was his aunt who collected the books. Okay. And he's one of the heirs to the uh, 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 estate. And he knew the books had value because they had they had appraised them in 1980. 8083, someone like that. And the highest price was $10,000. So even then he knew, but he didn't realize. Well, that's that a pretty big jump. That's, well, because these are pretty good books. Yeah, and over the 40 years or so since the first appraisal, I mean, these books have become more collectible and more rare. Right. And there are a lot of books that you could have appraised at $10,000 40 years ago. And I tell you, they're worth a couple of hundred now, yeah. too. So, <laughs> But he also had another group of about 17 or 18 books from the same publisher, uh, William Morris, Kelmscott Press. Mm-hmm. And they're lesser. They're They're... A few of them were in the hundreds of dollars, a couple in the mid-thousands, you know, 3000 4000 But as we're looking through them, two of them were signed by the publisher, William Morris, which probably adds 40 to 50% to the value. And then two of them were signed by William Morris, but they were inscribed to this man, artist named Edward Byrne Jones. He was a Victorian artist at the time. 
uh, well-known in the pre-Raphaelite, I mean, just a well-known artist at the time. But he's the one who illustrated the books. Oh. So this was okay. not only inscribed by the publisher, but publisher to the mm-hmm. illustrator. That takes probably adds like five times the value. So... Can, can we go back to the Nuremberg book, the 1492? Sure. First of all, 1492 is, is a big year. <laughs> a lot yeah, of things happened yeah, for I, obvious, I think... obvious reasons. Right? But uh, because of its age and uh, closeness to the Gutenberg era, this, this is, why is it not one of the most valuable books in the world, well, or is it? Well, no, it's not. Okay. I mean, uh, if you – okay, Gutenberg years, 1456 – the first printed book in the Western Hemisphere on movable press. It was a big deal. Probably if you had one of those now, it might be $100 million. Okay. Uh, And by the way, just this as an aside, uh, about 15 years ago I got a call and someone asked me on the phone, what's a Gutenberg Bible worth? And at the time I said 25, 30 million in that. Not that I've ever had one. I've had pages. And and I said, well, what do you – why are you calling? Why do you want to know? And they said, well, we just needed the information. And I do that all the time. That's no problem. About six or eight months later, I'm watching Jeopardy on TV. And the question was, Ken Gloss of Antiques Row Appraiser says this book is worth 25 to 35 million dollars. What would it be? (laughs) <laughs> so I was a question on Jeopardy. It doesn't get any bigger. That's better than a sandwich at the stage deli. Well, especially when you don't know. <laughs> yes. Especially when you don't know what's going to happen and you're just sort of watching and you almost fall off the chair. <laughs> so it's possible it was Alex Trebek's henchman who called you, perhaps? Well, we are convinced, my wife and I, Joyce, that there are some of the writers of those questions who are from the Boston area because if you really watch the show regularly, there are many, many Massachusetts and Boston. It, it would make sense since it, we're the hub of uh, academia and all that. And, and also, too, they probably have 15 or 20 writers or mm-hmm. more in that mm-hmm. show. Anyways, so the, by the time Gutenberg did the first book in 1456, you're talking almost 40 years. Printing took off. In that period, mm. there were printing presses that went from Germany to England to France to uh, all over the European uh, area and even further. And so it was one of these – it's sort of like computers. If you went back to where computers were 30 or 40 years ago and where they are now, printing and the, the invention of printing went like that. So by that time, there were lots of books. That's a great history lesson. I, I didn't understand exactly the – the procedural uh, progress of the printing press. Um, let's get back to the walk-in situation. So let's – I don't know if this is hypothetical or not, but you've got this situation. Do you offer a price at that meeting or a, a, an arrangement or well, how does that work? Well, see, that's, that's sort of – well, what, what we did is we definitely told him that he was – that we're very interested. We gave him quick insurance values so that he could take them back to um, – uh, the Midwest with them. Uh, we told him that, you know, and we explained to him that these two books inscribed are not just an inscription. These are, are very special. And he's got to talk with his family. So at least now he has a range of what their value is. And what we will do is he'll get back to us. Or I also have his phone number. I'll follow up if I don't hear in a month or so. Mm-hmm. 
One of the things I loved about the lawyer, though, if you inherit something in a uh, estate, you have to fill out uh, an, an appraisal for the internal revenue for the estate tax. If the items are sold within a year, you don't need the appraisal. You just put down what you sold them for. And the lawyer was saying it would be so much easier if we didn't need that involved thing, mm. the appraisal. It might be the best idea to just sell them within the year, which is – I'm smiling. <laughs> uh, Wouldn't that be nice? That would be nice. And then uh, probably what my next step will be is you know, we'll stay in touch with the person. But there's one of our colleagues that I know that specializes in exactly this type of book – I think he has some customers. Last time I talked to him, he was saying, if you ever see a collection like this. Mm. So what I'm probably going to do is make a call to London, which is where this colleague is, and just give him the preliminaries and tell him this is you know, what I've seen. This is what the person's thinking of. This is uh, what I think might or might not be happening. Uh, if it is something, would you be interested? Let's get together on this. And many times when you're dealing with really specialized rare books, you do partner with another person, dealer, specialist. Uh, it, first of all, it takes a little of the risk off, but even more so, uh, I, I hate to put it this way, is it's a person we really like, we trust, we enjoy. Mm. And I would almost guarantee you that if we weren't involved – somehow he would hear about this collection <laughs> and then be in it. So I'd rather call him at the beginning and work with who I think is the best in it well, you, than to have someone else call him. You've got a worldwide network, but it's a small network when you think about it of, of people who know this stuff inside out as you do. Exactly. And it's also the language of it. I mean, right. when I talk to you or I talk on the podcast, uh, I advise anyone listening, look up William Morris, look up the Kelmscott Press. You'll see images. You'll see all sorts of uh, descriptions of who he was and what he did, and it's fascinating. But when you talk to someone who knows, it, they know all the vocabulary. So, oh, I can say it's in a 19th century binding uh, with this type of work done by this binder, and there's no explanation needed. It, it, he goes, oh, okay. And knowing uh, this colleague of mine, if someone had to go to the Midwest, he'd either tell me to go or more likely he'd say, hey, that's a good excuse to come to the United States and do a trip and let's see if it works out. And that's always the hard part because you, no matter how far you get into something like this, you, you start salivating and saying, I'd love to have this. We have customers. It would just be to say that we owned one of these or we held them and we had some special copies. But until you've actually written the check, have the books in your hand, they're your books – Something can always interrupt. Excuse me. I've got a follow-up question that may seem a little mundane, but not to you, I'm sure. How was he transporting these very valuable books? Was he protecting them appropriately? Uh, uh, he had them in his luggage. Okay. Uh, and he's probably going to put them in uh, in baggage on the plane. So uh, does that make you wince a little bit? Well, I totally understand why he wants insurance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you know, I— you do a little, but I, I, you know, I think he'll, he'll be fine. He's going to come back in in a day or so. He wanted to show us a few things. I actually, since you mentioned that, uh, I might advise renting a car. But even when you rent a car on a trip that long, you've got to stop at a motel, hotel, 
uh, you know, you... Well, I'm, I'm always reminded of the famous stories of uh, this uh, struggling musician who has a very valuable violin, leaves it in the back of a cab, and then the yep. cab takes off. That, that would drive me crazy if I had a valuable item of that nature. Well, well, there's one thing, though, that he did ask me as we were talking about if they got stolen or so on. I said, I look at that book. There's a small number of people out there who would buy that book and a small number of dealers who would deal with mm. that kind of thing. Anybody stole the book and tried to sell it, They're it done. would almost instantly, everybody would know about it, yeah. and and it really wouldn't get anywhere anyway. It's like a piece of uh, very expensive art that uh, has no market because it's so well-known. Yeah, talk to the, the Gardner Museum. Exactly. Well, <laughs> that's, that's not a typical every day of the week kind of walk-in, but boy, is that exciting when it happens. We'll follow up maybe at some point. I, I, I hope with a thumbs-up follow-up. <laughs> He's Ken Gloss, of course, uh, from the Brattle Bookshop in Boston, a historic site, a great place to visit, and we do invite you to continue to listen to these podcasts and go back into the archives. There's a story for just about everybody and more to come. Thank you, Ken. We'll see you next time. Well, thank you. I love doing it.